we are joined by our panel this week. John McGuinness, Fianna Fáil TD and former chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. John, good morning to you. Susan O'Keefe, former Labour senator and investigative journalist, most known for her work that led to the Beef Tribunal, amongst many other things. Susan, good morning. Good morning. And this is quite the resume, Thomas Malloy. This is like a little CV I have in front of me here. Thomas Malloy, previously the editor of the Kilkenny People, formerly the business editor of the Irish Independent, and now director of public affairs and communications at Trinity College Dublin. What is it like to be outside the fourth estate, Thomas? Last time I spoke to you was on the right hook when you were still in the Indo. It's very strange, Jonathan. It's, it's, um, you, you miss it. You miss knowing what's going on. But um, it's also very pleasant to be able to take a, a rest from news a little bit. Well, the bad news is we're dragging you back in to talk about the news now today. So uh, it, it, it's like a, an Adele concert for one night only. Thomas Malloy giving his opinion <laughs> on the news. Uh, let's go to the front pages of the newspapers this morning. It's a brilliant story on the front of the Sunday Independent. To be fair, uh, the Sunday Business Post has it as well, but they don't put it on the front page. O'Leary's tirade at FG Fundraiser. Controversial Ryanair chief Michael O'Leary launched a blistering tirade against public sector workers at a Fine Gael pre-budget fundraising event attended by the Finance Minister Michael Noonan and three other Cabinet members. It was a €55 ahead business breakfast at the Shelburne Hotel, presumably a very good breakfast for that price. And Mr O'Leary said immoral striking Gardaí should be sacked and insisted private bus companies be allowed to operate routes during industrial action. The airline boss also branded RTE wait for this, a rat-infested North Korean union shop before adding, I can't turn on the nine o'clock news without having to see Ingrid Miley's face giving me the latest spew from the Trotskyites and the rest of it. Good Miley's an excellent reporter, by the way, just for the record. The attack on the national broadcaster brought loud and sustained applause, as well as laughter from the 200-strong audience at the Behind Closed Doors invite-only event in the City Centre Hotel. But they didn't close the doors well enough because it's on the front page of Sunday Independent. Um, the secondary headline there is an exclusive from Philip Ryan. Gardy ran secret 125k slush fund at Training College. A damning internal Garda report has found serious mismanagement of public funds by the Garda Training College. College in Templemore. The report compiled by auditors within Angarthashia Corner discovered a secret €125,000 fund created by staff using taxpayers' money, which was used to buy expensive meals in local restaurants and retirement gifts for senior officers. Sunday Business Post. A little for everyone. Gains for business, builders and farmers. It's all about the budget, which of course is on Tuesday. Small tax cuts, pension and welfare increases, as well as extra supports for the self-employed businesses and rural Ireland. All part of a €1.2 billion package, says the Business Post. But what is being described as the most complex budget process ever is being held up by a number of last-minute disputes. The Sunday Business Post has learned that Finance Minister Michael Noonan will unveil new benefits for the self-employed, an extension of the home renovation incentive scheme and a slashing of capital gains tax for entrepreneurs. The whistleblower story in a lot of the newspapers this morning, that's on the front page as well. Francesca Cummin, formerly of this parish, of course, writing uh, the inquiry set up to investigate startling whistleblower claims of malpractice within the Garda Siakona may be crippled by lack of access to key mobile phone evidence. The Sunday Business Post, uh, I beg your pardon, that was the Business Post, the Sunday Times, Fianna Fáil set to abstain on budget vote, Fianna Fáil ready to abstain in the vote on Tuesday's budget, forcing Enda Kenny to rely on the support of Michael Lowry or Michael Harty to avoid a general election. Uh, Trump refuses to quit over sex boasts, a picture um, of Trump, but also a picture of uh, the television presenter Nancy O'Dell, who was the target of those rather 
crude, well, very crude comments uh, on, on caught on tape in 2005. Uh, the Mail on Sunday, St. John of God snub to the HSE. Charity in 1.6 million secret payment scandal told HSE its chief could not attend vital meeting as he would be in Africa, yet he never left the country, claims the newspaper. And the front page of the Sunday World uh, Clue to a kill, smuggler's car in link to murder of innocent dad, Martin. So lots to chew on in the papers today. Michael O'Leary, um, Susan Mitchell, Michael O'Leary, you, you can always rely on him for a quote, we know that, but uh, quite the rant by yes, all accounts. He, he appears to have had quite the rant, although what he's talking about in North Korea, I don't know because I'm sure he's not actually ever been there. Um, but that never stopped Michael O'Leary before. Um, I, we were just saying before we came in, of course, that uh, the, the whole Ryanair approach recently to be softly, softly and much nicer. Uh, uh, in fairness, I, as a Ryanair passenger in recent times, have had some experience of them being nicer when I tried to change a ticket for a, for a flight. I was able to do it without an additional cost. So they'd done something to change some of the services. But I think that Michael O'Leary enjoys uh, speaking out. And of course, he was given the opportunity. This was a Fine Gael fundraiser. He was invited. He was introduced by the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan. Uh, he was obviously invited to speak. That was part of the attraction for the 55 euros that you paid for your breakfast, I assume, was that you got breakfast and you got Michael O'Leary first thing in the morning. Uh, and of course, he doesn't like to disappoint. No. Uh, so he, but he, it seems as if he did have a go at pretty much everybody, including the health service, Dublin City Council. I know he has a real thing about Dublin City Council and bicycles. He seems to hate bicycles and this gets his go because I've heard him speak in public before he, about Yes, bicycles. he's not, not a fan of bikes but uh, no. one would wonder is he going to be invited on said same North Korean rat trap anytime soon after the rants? Thomas Malloy, is, it, uh, is, is he cutting off his nose to spite his face because he won't get on RT after those type of comments? Oh, I'm sure RT can rise above, above that kind of thing, don't you think? Um, <laughs> it seems to me that, that uh, O'Leary's strength is his authenticity, you know, that, that we're, we're seeing this all over Europe at the moment, we're seeing a little bit in America. People do crave authenticity, and, and he has it. You know, a lot of what he says there, if you strip away the, the talk of North Korea and so on, a lot of what he says is the view of most people in this country, and he's, it's kind of refreshing for people to, to see it. So, in a way, it's kind of it's interesting to see he's back. Yeah, but did he ever go away? Is probably the well, question. Well, I think for about a year, the shareholders <laughs> told him to, to kind of zip it, and he did. But, in but fairness, uh, he does seem also to have used it as a platform for his own views on on taxation for business people, and he would have used that platform with the minister for finance, you know, to have uh, an audience, if you like, for for government ministers to hear him speak. So he would he's not he's not beyond using it for his own. But what I, well, it was probably like his effort to get. Um, his views into the budget process and to influence the direction of that process. Because it was a Fine Gael fundraiser. It is, did take place before the budget. Uh, behind closed doors, we're told. There's a bit of a question about that. Uh, and uh, Michael O'Leary, as you said, didn't disappoint. He, he uh, brought everyone into the loop and criticised anyone that he could. He made his views <laughs> clearly known. There was well, no uh, doubt about where he stood. It raises the question, how much is it for breakfast at a feed of oil fundraiser and who provides the entertainment there, John? Yeah, well, we haven't <coughs> had Michael O'Leary now at a breakfast. I, I haven't been at one, at least, where, where he was the guest speaker. Uh, but he does put his finger on the issues and he does, he feeds into uh, that uh, electorate out there, uh, the public out there that wants to see the establishment get, being challenged. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, RT to Dublin to bicycles, you name it, he challenges everyone. He gets them all in. Um, I want to talk about what is one of the big stories of the week, if not the biggest uh, national story, which is the whistleblowers. 
And again, we have detail in here of these allegations, John, that there was an attempt by senior Gardaí to undermine Maurice McCabe at a time when you would have been dealing with all of this in the Public Accounts Committee. What has been your reaction to what we have heard of these allegations from this whistleblower who is very senior, who is a superintendent, uh, who is saying these things now that I suppose are casting a different light on what was happening in that very difficult mm. time for Angarda Shia Well, Philip Ryan has a, an extensive, a big piece uh, in The Independent uh, and most of the detail, I think, of what is in the protected disclosure is actually in that piece. Uh, and it confirms, uh, certainly for me, and for a lot of others that uh, you know were told about what was going on at that time in the force, uh, how McCabe was being treated, how other whistleblowers were being treated, it just confirms that in fact it was true. Uh, and you know, for anyone in Leinster House at that time that was willing to listen, uh, you were told all sorts of uh, vile stories um, about uh, Morris McCabe and others in order to discredit them. And we now have uh, a judge appointed to look at this. And really, I think we're going down the same road as before. Uh, We're not acknowledging the mistakes that we made. I think the government should have got somebody reputable and um, recognised internationally from outside of the country. No disrespect to the judge that's appointed. But I think that 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 would be the only way to deal with this. And more than likely, because of what I have been reading in the papers today, when this uh, report is made available to us, there'll probably be the need for another inquiry because of the extent of the information that is now being put before uh, the Minister for Justice. Are we just continually circle the plug hole on this, John? Because if we have an inquiry that leads to another inquiry that leads to another inquiry, are we not avoiding what is the most important thing in all of this, which is accountability? Uh, which is the truth um, and what you're saying is correct and we've been avoiding the truth um, as much as we, uh, as possible in this and then you have the likes of Morris McCabe who appeared before the Public Accounts Committee in full uniform uh, with his evidence he did not point a finger at any individual as was we were told might happen he didn't he was very very constructive uh, and I have to say he put his career and everything else his family on the line and put forward what he believed to have happened he has proven to be absolutely correct. And since then, uh, in my opinion, from what I have heard, he has been treated very badly by the force and continues to be treated very badly uh, by the management of the force. Uh, and that is not acceptable. The, 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 um, the legislation is there to protect someone like Morris McCabe. But this sends out a very, very bad message about how you can be treated if you come forward. You, you've spoken before about this private meeting that you had in a hotel car park out in Newlands Cross with the then guard the Commissioner Martin Callanan who told you that McCabe was not to be trusted. Uh, I think it was about 20 minutes in total. You went on to speak to Morris McCabe anyway in private but did, were you, did they try to bring you into this? Well that very meeting brought me into it um, and unexpectedly uh, but yeah I, I did then uh, have to look at uh, the case being put forward by Morris McCabe and the evidence that he had and I firmly believed what he had to say uh, and in in this um, latest disclosure uh, according to Philip Ryan that is mentioned so if you like I feel vindicated by the decision I made at that time uh, which was to ensure that the Public Accounts Committee uh, examined the issue uh, and dealt with it uh, but all of this new disclosure confirms 
everything mm. that we had suspected. Should you have met with the commissioner, though? I mean, is, is that you, you say you've been vindicated now, but in hindsight, was that an error of judgment on your part as, as the head of the PC? No, not at all. I met with many people. If you don't meet with people and you talk don't meet to them, them in car parks, you, you don't get the. Though, not regularly, no. But you would meet people in order to to get the details that you require to um, stand up an argument or to inform yourself. And and I believe in doing that. And had we not reached out to Morris McCabe, had we not taken in the evidence from Morris McCabe, we wouldn't have disclosed what was disclosed during the public hearings of that Public Accounts Committee. Susan O'Keefe, you know a fair bit about tribunals um, and, and their establishment. Uh, we have judge-led inquiries now. We no longer do tribunals because they're too expensive. They're too but expensive. Again, I have to worry the point I made earlier that we are circling the plug hole on this and are going to continue doing so for quite some time. I mean, my, my uh, uh, you know, all the several concerns one would have about these particular stories, I'm just puzzled by the fact that protected disclosures were made in this case and mm. they go to the Minister for Justice, whoever the Minister for Justice is, and in this case, Francis Fitzgerald, has to decide what to do with them. There's no apparatus in place for, for an automatic follow through on a protected disclosure. So anyone who makes a protected disclosure in any walk of life, but particularly in these circumstances where it's incredibly fraught and incredibly difficult, they don't know what's going to happen to the protected disclosures. They have to wait, it seems in this case, for the minister to decide, along with cabinet colleagues, what should we do? Oh, we'll appoint a judge and we'll carry out an inquiry uh, and we'll give him six weeks to respond. And, and you'll see in today's Sunday Times that it's reported that several other whistleblowers, whistleblowers and in inverted commas, have made protected disclosures and the guards are now looking to be included in this new investigation. Well, as soon as you start into that, then you show that those other people who made their protected disclosures, what happened to them? Where did their disclosures go? Why did these ones become more important? They, they are obviously important, but do you see what I mean? So it, it seems to me that the apparatus isn't but we've is correctly in place. Apart from that, when a protected disclosure is made, it is unusual to read about ju- not just one, but a number of protected disclosures in the paper. But does that not mean, John, that the people the who, make, yeah, who make the disclosures no longer trust the system that maybe we don't know where the but source for Philip, com, Philip Ryan's com report is? Well, it's not just Philip Ryan. It's in a number of the papers this morning. And it does point to uh, people not trusting the system because there is sufficient evidence there to show that those that come forward are bullied and intimidated and isolated in their jobs. And that there is no process there uh, to deal with it. And it's, it's, you know, heralded as a great piece of legislation. But, you know, it it does not offer the protection that whistleblowers think that it's offered. And And it was progress. And they they are entitled to that protection. Maurice McCabe, I read in the paper today, is out on leave since April. Yeah. Um, his family are devastated. Likewise, with the other whistleblower, and I have met numerous other whistleblowers that are in exactly the same boat, telling exactly the same story, yeah. and if we don't solve it now, it's just going to continue yeah. on. I mean, protected disclosures legislation is, was a start to answering some mm. of these problems, but if you are now wondering, wandering around in the system, wondering, I mean, according to the Sunday Independent, it, was, it had a name, it was the Oshin Project, this project to dis... To, to diss, if you like, um, Morris McCabe. It had its own name. It, it was something they set up. Now, if that's true, that's a very serious allegation. It ought to be treated. But if you're the people making those kinds of disclosures and you're waiting, wondering, I wonder where my disclosure is going to go, mm. that's simply not enough. And as you said, we will continue to circle the plug hole, not just in the guards, but in other organisations where people take courage in their hands to come forward and make 
complaints and observations about the environment they work in. Thomas Malloy, there's a lot to be said for journalism in this because at least the matters are being highlighted first of all through this rather than the channels perhaps they should be and again if we have systems that are in place that aren't working is it not up to the press to identify that and to support those who are blowing the whistle? It is and I think the press are doing a great job in this in this particular case uh, there's, there's kind of um, really good reporting in, in all the papers today and, and it's really important reporting and, and don't forget that the guards are incredibly litigious uh, as a force they, they, they use the libel laws as do judges and solicitors all the time to to make it difficult to, to print stories about them. So it's, um, it's kind of particularly encouraging to see such good reporting right across the spectrum today. But uh, I still think, uh, I think John's point is, is very well made. I think at this stage, an internal inquiry, I mean, a domestic inquiry, it's not good enough. You know, there's, there's unease right across the population about every aspect of the Gardaí, from these kind of, you know, from so-called whistleblowing cases all the way through to the failure to tackle crime and I think they all hang together and, and there's a, a kind of a worry and it needs to be looked at by, by outsiders and, and at this stage. John McGuinness, we had the O'Higgins report and we read the O'Higgins report and that dealt with Morris McCabe and, and, and it said very nice things about him. It said that uh, he, he didn't um, he, he performed a genuine public service at considerable personal cost but effectively there was no evidence to support the claims of guard the corruption. What's, what we're hearing now does does that unpick the O'Higgins report a little bit? Do we it, need it, to revisit it? No, it clearly does. And, and you know, as I said, the judge has been appointed. But there's a far greater deal of work to be done here in order to deal with the issues once and for all. And it does challenge the O'Higgins report in terms of that. It also confirms that Morris McCabe was telling the truth and that during the course of all of this, he paid an enormous price and continues to pay that price. So who is going to stand up for not just Morris McCabe, but all of the other whistleblowers who are attempting to do good by the state and are not being protected? And even the name whistleblower, I I deem them to be concerned citizens employed in a particular sector. And we should show respect for them. And we should understand that once you blow the whistle, that is not the end of it. There is consequences after you do that. And because of that, we need to extend protection from the state to these individuals. And finally, we need to deal with the issue. Otherwise, we will continue to go back to this issue and we'll continue to have a situation where the Gardaí are being put in question all of the time. How many whistleblowers are you aware of? Within, Within the Gardaí economy? At least a half a dozen. And they, uh, how many of them? Every have- one of them tell the same story. Noreen O'Sullivan is the commissioner. To lose one commissioner for a government is careless. Um, if we lose a second one, I don't know what that says. But well, Noreen O'Sullivan is, due, is entitled to due process. But it, it's about that due process, I think, that we're concerned, that I am concerned about, uh, and the appointment uh, of a judge to look narrowly, uh, to look at, at this in a very narrow way. In, in order to deal with this comprehensively, you need somebody from outside of the state. You need someone that will not be afraid of any vested interest and will stand up and declare this the way it is. Tell it the way it is. Similarly to what Michael O'Leary has did, did at the Finnegale breakfast. Come out and let's, let's disclose everything warts and all so that we can find a solution to these problems. Because as we discuss this, as Tom has said, and, and indeed as those files were being created, Oshin and all of the other ones, uh, in terms of intelligent files and meetings going up and down the country about Morris McCabe, about smearing his name crime was being committed 
And the, the Ardy rank and file Garda doing his best deserves better and deserves better leadership. But this is ordinary rank and file Gardaí who right now are for the first time in their history going to actually go out on strike, right. Susan O'Keefe. And this is a culture and this is a cultural issue. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's not beat around the bush. It's a cultural issue from the top down mm. that needs to be addressed. And you can understand perhaps why the Gardaí are so frustrated if this is the kind of thing that has been going on. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you were an ordinary guard who went into, joined the guards because you believed in doing good, because you believed in the notion of guarding society, and we still have an unarmed guard of force, unlike in many other countries, we do believe in the guardians of the peace on Garda Siakana. And here you have ordinary rank and file members feeling that they are not properly paid. But more than that, they're not properly protected that if something does go wrong, they don't seem to have proper recourse and that there seems to be a culture where that if somebody does report something and somebody has a criticism, they get knelt on, squeezed on and squeezed out. And that's not f- that's not a decent way to run any organisation. You can't then hope mm. for any organisation to do its job properly if the culture is wrong. Therefore, any investigation, a narrow one in this case, based on Project Oshin or whatever, uh, is one thing. But it, it just begs much wider questions. And they need, they really need to be answered. Mm. Now, a lot of had it, we have reached the end of Thomas, this. Just, need just to finish up on this, uh, we've had a situation where we, we have a police force that's been in crisis for some time. I mean, we lament the days when there wasn't a crisis in the police force, but perhaps the fact that there was so little scrutiny gave rise to the problems we're talking about now. But for the police force of this state, it is very difficult to do their job right now. And you'd wonder where that leadership is going to come from. Is it going to come from internally within the Garda Shikana? Is it going to come from confidence from an outside source, as John has been suggesting? How do we fix this? Well, it'll, it'll have to be a mixture of both, won't it? And, and you know, the Garda is a large, complicated organisation. All complex organisations have problems. They have you know, disputes between people, they have disputes within hierarchies. That's normal. That's what happens in big organisations. The thing that distinguishes a functioning organisation from a dysfunctional one is how they deal with those kind of problems. And, and this is what's at stake here. This is what we're all talking about. We're talking about a process, and I know it can sound a little bit boring, a little bit dry, a little bit abstract at times, but if we don't, if we don't uh, see a real appetite from the hierarchy within the Guardi and you know, outside within the political system and in, among the public, I think, because the public have a role here as well to report uh, problems that they encounter. If we don't see that, if we don't see a 360-degree effort to solve this, we're, we're in deep trouble. Now, the big debate tonight, of course, is between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. But the big story is the t- Trump tape. Now, we've had to censor a little bit of this because the language is inappropriate for anyone's ears, never mind little ears. So don't worry if you have little ears in the car. We have beeps in the appropriate... Oh, do we not have beeps in the... We do have some a language that actually isn't appropriate. T- tell the children, tune out for a minute. She's still very beautiful. I moved on her, actually. You know, she was down on Palm Beach. I moved on her, and I failed. I'll admit it. Whoa. I did try and f*** her. She was married. <laughs> huge news there. No, no, Nancy. Yeah. No, this was marriages. And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony and everything. She's totally changed her look. She's your girl's hottest in the purple. Oh. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Oh, yes, the Donald has scored. <laughs> Whoa. Better not be the public. No, it's, it's her. It's yeah, that's her with the gold. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. 
I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Legs. All I can see is the legs. No, it looks good. Oh, nice legs, huh? It's always good if you don't fall out of the bus. Like Ford, Gerald Ford, remember? <laughs> Down below. Pull the half. Hello, how are you? Hi. Hey, Mr. Trump, how are nice you? you? Terrific. At the seat, first of all, there is no way you can censor that in a way that makes it unoffensive because it is offensive from the very start to the very end. And arguably the most offensive part of it, Susan, is when he gets out of the bus. Hi, how are you? And if that doesn't show him to be the duplicitous snake that he is, I don't know what will. Yeah, it's hard. Isn't it difficult to just know what is going on with Donald Trump? I mean, he has offended everybody right through his campaign. Everybody, Muslims, Mexicans, women, uh, veterans, everybody. Strangely, he hasn't had a cut off the Irish, who I thought would have been on the list at some point. No, but this, I suppose, there's something different about this tape, I suppose, because it hasn't been part of the campaign. The tape was taken from another time, of course, something he tried to use to defend himself. Uh, Oh, it's a decade old, so don't worry about it, is what he really meant. But it, it was from another place, not part of this kind of hyped campaign where everything is being watched, everything is being looked at. And suddenly a voice from the other Donald Trump, from when he wasn't in political life, when he wasn't on the public platform, suddenly comes flashing through and the impact is much more profound. Mm. And, you know, it's, it is hard to see Republicans now dropping out of, you know, their support for him. They could have done that at any time with all of the vile things that he has said in the last year. But they're doing it now. They feel, too, that they've been caught supporting the unsupportable. Now, if it um, was anyone in this country, they would be hiding under the nearest bush to avoid having to face the media on this. But I don't think there's an Irish politician who would actually be that brash and that obnoxious, not the ones I know. But Trump decided to defend what he said because, as you pointed out, Susan, it was a decade ago. Let's listen. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret, and the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. Anyone who knows me knows these words don't reflect who I am. I said it, I was wrong, and I apologize. Let's be honest, we're living in the real world. This is nothing more than a distraction from the important issues we're facing today. We are losing our jobs, we're less safe than we were eight years ago, and Washington is totally broken. Hillary Clinton and her kind have run our country into the ground. I've said some foolish things, but there's a big difference between the words and actions of other people. Bill Clinton has actually abused women, and Hillary has bullied, attacked, shamed, and intimidated his victims. We will discuss this more in the coming days. See you at the debate on Sunday. Yeah, it's, it's incomprehensible. I mean, the, the whole idea that somebody, you know, wanting the top job, wanting to be the president of the United States, uh, would would hold those views, would then pretend that he had just spoken them in some kind of but you see, odd I, I, fashion. We have an indication, John McGuinness, of Trump's inner monologue, because occasionally when he goes off script, that was off an autocue written by somebody else, so they contained him. But every now and then Trump forgets the autocue and talks about, you know, Mexicans or walls or, or whatever. Or and, and I wonder, are Muslims, and I wonder that little discussion that was caught on that open mic on the bus, is that the internal Trump? Is that the real Donald? 
Well, I mean, we've listened to his comments and they're offensive right across, um, you know, America. You can pick any group and I don't think he, he hasn't offended. There's no, no group that he hasn't offended. Uh, it begs a question about the American electorate, how they have tolerated this, because each time there's a poll taken after, um, you know, an, a, an event where he has uh, um, criticised someone, he's up in the polls. He's still in the race. And he's brave enough to say that in spite of these tape, this tape, and probably more to be released, that he would stay in the race. And, you know, if that was here, he would be gone as a candidate. Yeah. Simply gone. But the Republicans have tolerated him. He has said many, many, many things that are not in line with the Republican Party. And they still have tolerated but him. Now, if he doesn't, if he, if he steps out, you're faced with the Vice President... Uh, Pence and uh, you know the, the Democratic candidate is Hillary Clinton. None of them really um, liked, I think, uh, loved by the electorate, and yet Donald Trump can say these things, and it would appear get away with them. The, the real problem for the Republicans, Thomas Malloy, uh, is what they do with them. But the bigger problem for the Democrats is if he drops out pretty much anyone else they put up is going to beat Hillary because she is that unpopular in her own right. Yeah, yeah that, that, that may well be the case. I, I don't really know. I, I, I was a reporter in Washington for a couple of years in the 90s when, when the last Clinton was president. And uh, I, I, I know what John is saying about this is, in a way, American democracy on, on trial here. But I, I, would make a, I would make a bet now that, that, that Trump will not be elected. I think this is the final nail in his coffin. And in a way, American democracy is working. Um, it was a very in- inspired leak. You, you wonder how long that that Oh, they've been sitting on that for some time. <laughs> <laughs> they claim they, claim they only kind of, found it last week. They claim they yeah, only they found claim, it last week. Yeah, they claim, but it was in the vaults of NBC uh, now uh, for uh, 10 uh, years. Uh, but I, f- I found the, a disc at home the other day from 2005 that I listened back to. It was the most boring thing of all time. I didn't listen to the entire thing. The, they went looking for something on Trump, and they said, I wonder, do we still have that tape where he was an obnoxious individual? In the well, isn't that what they do in American politics? Um, and, and they found this chestnut that's going to deal with him as a candidate. Well, they, that, went looking they, after a pro- they say they went looking after a programme was aired about those people who'd taken part in The Apprentice, which of course Donald Trump was, you know, Mr. Hiron and Farlam. And because of the, the, the behaviour uh, that, that of his behaviour and the way that he had treated particularly women and they, they told their stories on this programme that then this lot went looking in their own vault to see if there was something on their tapes. So the story goes. But, it, isn't but you're it, right, it, that's what happens in America. Isn't it interesting who the who the interviewer was? He was a Bush. He was a member of the Bush dynasty. Mm. So Bush who got Senior, away very Bush, lightly from got very, very, very lightly indeed. But yes. Bush Senior tried to get rid of him. He hasn't. Bush Junior tried. Jeb Bush obviously went up against the Bushes. The most unexpected Bush of all has finally, uh, <laughs> finally, kind of knocked Trump sideways. But it is a very sad recording. It has to be said, isn't it? I mean, Trump has resonated with children. I know in this country and in my family and all around the world, and that children should have to listen to this kind of thing is is, is sickening. What is what is brilliant is that children are now turning against Trump. My own eight-year-old told me. Trump can't become president and how he had the awareness of that just from listening to the radio on the background or whatever. And the other argument that was put forward, not wishing to defend my gender, is that this was somehow locker room humour. I've never been in a locker room where that kind of humour was was made. You know, the conversation in locker rooms I've always been in is I have to pick up the kids or this is happening in work that I don't like. We don't go around making derogatory comments to that degree about women. It just doesn't happen. As far as but I he know. believes that that type of conversation is acceptable that's my view on it 
and um, he he then immediately tried, tries to turn it on the sins of Bill Clinton and Hillary as if that was okay too um, and it's astonishing to listen to the tape and to listen to how he is trying to get out of it now um, and it'll be, it will be further interesting to see how the American electorate respond to this or the American public respond well, to this. Well maybe in a perverse way it will, I mean we've been talking about people like Michael O'Leary and people like Donald Trump speaking their mind and speaking openly and trying to nail things that other people wouldn't say and maybe in, 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 in an odd way this might uh, you know, stop us again and, and, and start to think is, is this the correct way to be going, are people like this who speak their mind so so passionately sometimes but also with such an ugly Phrase and such a such a, um, a despicable kind of vile language. Okay, well, is that what is that what we want in our political mm. public life? I well, don't believe not. we actually yeah. do. Maybe the turn. Let's be careful back. not to compare Mick O'Leary with what Donald Trump I has been saying because there's a significant to, difference. But in terms of being, oh, you know, in terms of being blunt and in terms <laughs> yes, of putting I understand your finger on things. I, I just ask: Is that the level that, that we've fallen to, or that they have fallen to in American politics? that this now becomes part the of, of the, the campaign, norm, yeah. part of the discourse, well, what, and is treated as normal. What is interesting is tonight's debate is more of a town hall debate, which mm. means it's not a moderator this in the two candidates. It's the public. So if I was Hillary Clinton, I'd sit back and say nothing for the evening because your man is doing all the heavy lifting for her. Thomas Malloy, uh, you'll enjoy not having to report on the budget this year because it's the business journalist's nightmare to try and make sense of what the ministers are saying. But I think the Sunday Business Post sums it up when they say a little for everyone and they should have the subheading but not much for anyone. Yep, that seems to be the case. Again, another budget that has been completely leaked by the, by the sounds of it. It's quite remarkable how there's almost no, uh, no excitement around budgets these days or no excitement around the speeches themselves. Uh, you've got to feel very sorry for, for Pascal Donahue and Michael Noonan. They've got a very difficult job. There's clearly been huge, huge expectation. Uh, and uh, it sounds like a lot of people are going to be... Um, quite disappointed. I mean, 1.2 billion they've managed to add a couple of hundred million to it from what we were talking about earlier in the year which was 950 million but it's still not an awful lot and anyone who's expecting much in their pocket afterwards is going to be very disappointed which creates a bit of a problem for Fine Gael. Well it, it shows you how um, how governments are just less powerful than they used to be. I mean for, for many many people listening the decisions taken in Frankfurt by Mario Draghi will have a much bigger impact on their take home pay on their net net spending it, it shows you that the budget is kind of a tired, tired kind of farce at this stage. And I know we, we like to talk about it. It's also, incidentally, the best-selling paper of the year is a day after a budget. But um, it really doesn't mean that much. And it, and it can't mean that much in these kind of straighted times. So the thing about a budget that is interesting is, I suppose, is if you take a step back, I think if, if you'd concentrate less on the couple of euros here and there and you, you, you do what actually what the Americans do at the end of their tax form, which is do a pie chart, it tells you how the nation spends its money. And Joe Biden once said, um, don't tell me what your values are. Show me your budget, and then I'll see what your values are. And it's, um, it, that's, to me, what the main interest of a budget is these days, that um, we spend huge amounts on, on quite narrow areas, and we, we by and large, ignore uh, quite a lot of the, uh, you know, what a government does, what mm. a country should be doing. I think it's time that we, we really almost abolish budgets and, and I must say when when I and when the majority of people in this country voted for the fiscal stability pact that's what I thought we were voting for an end to kind of pulling rabbits out of hats kind of zany ideas like decentralization 
and the beginning of a much more structured plan where people could input in a kind of structured way over several months to to uh, to really have a kind of a proper debate. Mm, well, you're putting a lot of faith in the body politic. John McGuinness will turn to you now. Um, <laughs> Fianna Fáil looks like they're going to sit this one out. Uh, having contributed to the process, uh, you're going to abstain on Tuesday. Yeah, that's the uh, arrangement that we have uh, with the government. In order to form the government, someone had to stand back. And uh, Fianna Fáil have... They're providing their support, I suppose, in terms of financial matters by actually not voting. Um, I don't like that position, but that's the position we have. Um, the, well, other, the, the, the otherwise, the only position you the, have, John, really, is that you're saying to the pensioners, "We want to give you the money in January, and that other mean shower won't don't want to give it to you for longer." Yeah, than that's that. how it's been played out in the papers, and the whole budget has leaked in the papers. Now, whether that's true or false, or how it's going to actually play out on the day, we don't know until it's announced. But I agree with Tom; it's a non-event, uh, and the outcome of the budget will be that uh, it's just going to be a spread of of money too thinly across the country, and no sector will actually feel it. It won't be a reforming budget. And it's dictated in the main um, by Europe. Uh, we got two bills in to my committee, finance. Um, there were bills presented by Michael McGrath, passed to us by the Dáil itself, but they have to go to Brussels uh, before we can actually discuss them or take them a second stage. Yeah. That's how controlling it is. Uh, we never look in the budget actually at the other side, uh, what the CNAG reports on. Uh, the losses and how the money is spent uh, no, and it, it's unusual again, in that respect But it comes back to accountability again we, we, despite your best efforts in your committee we, we, we don't hold people to account if money isn't spent right despite the fact we torture ourselves about how we should spend it No and there's there's a report on the front of the paper again today about the Garda um, ran secret 125k slush fund uh, there's reports in the Comptroller Auditor General as to how the whole system has failed uh, in terms of different issues. Every single year the report comes out and we do nothing to address that side of the budget. But for people who are ex- have an expectation around this budget and solving the problems of homelessness or putting more money into people's pockets, there won't be that much at the end of the day for them. Um, Budgets used to be debated long into the night and the vote would be taken at 12 o'clock. That no longer happens. They oh, generally oh, collapse now around 8 o'clock or whatever uh, it is. I think there's around. nine hours of speeches scheduled for Tuesday before we all lose the will to live watching well, that's them before, from the That's in the presentation well, of the budget. And yeah. of course there will be this time because this, this particular structure of government is quite different from from before and everybody will want their say. We have three budget speeches. We, we have Michael yeah. Noonan, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath. But, uh, and it's interesting to see Michael McGrath today in, in, in the Sunday Times uh, as saying we sought to influence as best we could uh, but it's not our budget and we don't have full control over it so that's that really sums up the Fianna Fáil position so don't blame, don't blame us well, for the bits like you don't we, like we sought to influence exactly so we, d- we did our best and we're doing our best but actually yeah exactly um, please don't but also what? interesting to see Matt Cooper talking uh, in, in the Sunday Business Post about whether or not uh, Michael Noonan has if you like outstayed his welcome whether or not he, he needs to move on uh, he goes on to say that that perhaps he will only move on when Enda Kenny moves on. Uh, but people, you know, questioning Michael Noonan, perhaps in a way they wouldn't have uh, even a year ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I think know. Michael Noonan is probably holding it together in terms of the politics of Fine Gael, uh, and indeed Enda Kenny. And this budget mm-hmm. has to be, as it were, got out of the way. But it's not just Fianna de Fáil trying to influence the budget. It's also the independents uh, and others. Um, of course. Um, yes. Michael Lowry, I'm sure. And those that will that will they will look to to support the budget. How you can get a budget that will be effective and reforming after you deal with all of those groups 
it just will be seen that it doesn't work. Because one of the things about this government is that it's about as dysfunctional as every other government. You know, the new politics that everyone talks about... Dysfunctional in a different way. Yeah. A new dysfunction. It's just a joke, that new politics. The committees don't work, the budget doesn't work, and there is no attempt to reform and deliver a better system. However, the one thing I'm I'm wondering is that we see that Enda Kenny is going to meet the um, European Commissioner Chief Negotiator, Michel Barnier, today, the guy who's in charge of the Brexit negotiations on on behalf of the European Commission. What I want to know is who exactly in in government is responsible for Brexit? Who is our Brexiteer? Because while Charlie Flanagan, who's the Minister for Foreign Affairs, obviously has responsibility, has he been given that task? I don't know who's responsible, Mm. and I really would like to know. And and this budget really important should be the first budget post-Brexit. I'm not sure what reference will be given to it on Tuesday, Thomas Malloy, but David McWilliams has a very interesting piece about effectively the resurgence of nationalism in Britain. Um, that's going to damage us on many levels if that if Theresa May follows through and what she was talking about during the week. We need to be preparing now. And you could argue that the budget on Tuesday should be more Brexit than anything else. But it's very interesting to look at the, the coverage on Brexit right across the papers because it seems to me that Theresa May's speech that she gave this week, it had one great virtue, which it was very clear. I think, you, you know, you could look at the soundbites and, and you could see very clearly that this is a, we're facing a hard Brexit. And suddenly everyone is acknowledging that. And in, in this country as well, and I think there's been a lot of wishful thinking about, uh, you know, that we'll get a special deal, all, all kinds of wishful thinking. And I think we, we, we're only now beginning to, um, to face up to, to, the, to the real shape and, and the, the look of Brexit, I, I agree with Suzanne. We need to we need to have one individual. We need to have uh, a, a, put a lot of effort into this. But I'm glad that we've waited up to now because it seems to me that in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, a lot of nonsense was talked. Um, uh, now we're you know now we can kind of see where the good thing about Brexit is it's it's relatively slow motion. We do have some time to to take the feel to think about it. Um, but, but now Theresa May has, has made it quite clear what's going to happen. I don't, think, I don't think we have that time, Tom. In, in, in business, you, you might have it and you might be able to turn things around pretty quickly and plan. But it, when it comes to governments mm. and in particular the bureaucracy of the European Union, you don't have time. And Theresa May has time on her hands because she's dictating the And case. she made it clear that the decision that was taken on the 23rd of June was taken by the United Kingdom in its entirety. Mm-hmm. She's not looking to have any derogation mm-hmm. for, for Scotland, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland because Ireland. And we're, we're not prepared down. as a country for it. Neither are businesses well, prepared we're for it. We're not. I have I, to say... But she's laid, her, she's laid her mark down I'm now. Sure it won't it be the next government's problem anyway, whoever they are, the when they come into power next year? The January. <laughs> January. So John McGuinness, you heard it here first. John McGuinness, Fianna Foyle TD and former Labour Senator Susan O'Keefe and Thomas Malloy, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College. Thank you.